Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44, New Living Translation. Hello. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. We're glad to be with you today on Anchored by Truth. This is our final episode in the series that we have called The Seriousness of Sin. During this series, we talked about the consequences of sin, both in this world and in eternity to come. We've discussed the reality and nature of hell, and we spent a few episodes talking about how seriously God treats sin. If you want an easy-to-see example of how seriously God treats sin, you only have to realize that man lost paradise and death entered creation all because of a single sin in the Garden of Eden. And an even more graphic example of sin's seriousness is that God's only Son had to die on the cross to atone for sin's consequences. To help us wrap up this series, we have R.D. Fierro in the studio today. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., in our last episode, we talked about sin being out of bounds. Can you briefly summarize why that was important? Well, one of the reasons that talking about sin being out of bounds was so important, and the thing that got me started on thinking about sin as being something that is always out of bounds, was that I was having a conversation with Doug Apple, who was the manager of the Wave 94 radio station in Tallahassee, Florida. And Doug once said to me, and I'm quoting Doug now, God set up boundaries for us, and things outside the boundaries are called sin. And things outside the boundaries don't work right. If we're paying attention, we can see that things outside the boundaries are problematic. Well, I think Doug is absolutely right about that. I think that's a great condensation of one of the biggest reasons that sin is so serious. So as we began to summarize the eight episodes that had come before that last episode, and as I started thinking about that conversation with Doug, that sin is beyond the boundaries, I wanted for listeners to start to begin to think in their own lives about whether there are any areas in their lives where they may be living beyond the boundaries. Because as Doug noted, anything beyond the boundaries that God has set for us is going to cause problems. You know, the whole point of this Seriousness of Sin series is to help people start thinking about whether they really have a biblically-based understanding of what sin is and whether or not they may be taking, whether any of us may be taking the subject of sin and treating it lightly or, like our broader culture, treating it flippantly. Because if they are treating sin lightly or flippantly, they are going to have problems. Sin is insidious. At first, sinful activities may seem fun or pleasurable, 
especially to young people, it may seem like we make too big a deal out of sin. We hear people say things like, what's the harm, or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But what the Bible clearly shows us is that sin always causes harm. It may cause a little initially, but the harm will build over time. And all too often, by the time the sinner realizes the gravity of what they have been doing, it is too late. But by developing a biblical understanding of sin, we can avoid the proliferation of sin in our lives and the harm that sin will produce. Yes. So, in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we talked about how we can know that we are approaching or going beyond the boundaries that God has set for us. And anyone who missed that episode or any episode of Anchored by Truth can go to our website, crystalseabooks.com, and listen to it. That's C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S-E-A-B-O-O-K-S dot com. Right. So, last time we talked about the fact that God's boundaries are meant to keep us safe while we're passing through this world. We are, in essence, strangers in a strange land, to quote the old Bible verse. But while we're passing through, there are boundaries that have been set for us, and so we want people to understand that those boundaries are meant to keep us safe. Because we don't want people sojourning with sin the way Abraham's nephew Lot did when he went to live in the city of Sodom. Sojourning with sin is not just unwise. It can pose mortal danger just as it did for the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. If Lot had stayed out of Sodom, he would never have lost his wealth, his family, and his dignity. Lot sojourned with sin and paid the price. Now, God rescued Lot and his two youngest daughters, but it would have been so much better for Lot and his family if God had not had to do the rescue. Now, we don't know the specific reason that Lot decided to abandon his life as a very successful shepherd and animal tender, but we do know that Lot's life is just one more sad example of what happens when we let the lust of our eyes entice us to go beyond God's boundaries. And that's something that has been happening ever since Satan first tempted Eve in the garden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 says, quote, The woman saw how beautiful the tree was and how good its fruit would be to eat, and she thought how wonderful it would be to become wise. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, and he also ate it, unquote. Eve's surrender to temptation began with her eyes. The same thing was true of Lot. Genesis chapter 13 verse 10 says, quote, Lot looked around and saw that the whole Jordan Valley, all the way to Zoar, had plenty of water like the Garden of the Lord or like the land of Egypt, unquote. Lot liked how the Jordan Valley looked, so he left his uncle and the mountains and descended into Sin's Valley where he lost everything. Those verses are from the Good News Translation. Right. Both Lot and Eve got into trouble, at least in part, because they were tempted by beauty. In Eve's case, it was the beauty of the tree. In Lot's case, it was the beauty of the valley. Now, there's nothing wrong, per se, with being attracted to beauty. But we must always check to be sure that the beauty that we are seeking is the beauty that arises from godly things, and not the kind of lustful desires that arise from our eyes or our pride. We hear about the role that beauty can play in leading people into temptation and ultimate destruction in two of the best-known passages from the Old Testament about the city of Tyre. 
Tyre was a very wealthy city on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea during biblical times. It amassed huge wealth from trading because of its powerful navy and coastal location. The prophet Ezekiel gave several prophecies about the upcoming destruction of Tyre. In chapter 27, verse 2 and 3 of his book, Ezekiel said, quote, Mortal man, sing a funeral song for Tyre, that city which stands at the edge of the sea and does business with people living on every seacoast. Tell her what the sovereign Lord is saying. Tyre, you boasted of your perfect beauty, unquote. Then in chapter 28, verses 12 through 15, Ezekiel reports God talking to the king of Tyre. God said, quote, You were once an example of perfection, how wise and handsome you were. You lived in Eden, the garden of God, and wore gems of every kind, rubies and diamonds, topaz, beryl, carnelian and jasper, sapphires, emeralds, and garnets. You had ornaments of gold. They were made for you on the day you were created. You lived on my holy mountain and walked among sparkling gems. Your conduct was perfect from the day you were created until you began to do evil, unquote. And that's also from the Good News Translation. Now, some Bible commentators think that when God addresses the king of Tyre in chapter 28 of Ezekiel, that God is actually speaking to Satan, using the human king as more or less a representative for Satan. But there is not a consensus among the scholarly community on that particular position. But regardless of whether God is addressing Satan or God is just addressing a puffed-up earthly king, we can see that beauty in and of itself is not a sign that danger may not be lurking just around the corner. Just because something's beautiful doesn't mean that it may not be dangerous. We have to be alert to the possibility that evil is using visual beauty as a disguise. And this is one thing that you said you wanted to talk about as we wrap up this series. There are often obvious warning signs that sin is, as God told Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, quote, crouching at your door, unquote. But sin does also crouch at the door in a monster outfit. Here's what the Apostle Paul had to say when he was warning the church in Corinth about the dangers of false teachers, quote, those men are not true apostles. They are false apostles who lie about their work and disguise themselves to look like real apostles of Christ. Well, no wonder. Even Satan can disguise himself to look like an angel of light, so it is no great thing if his servants disguise themselves to look like servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get exactly what their actions deserve. Unquote. Right. Sin is dangerous, at least in part, because it can masquerade so effectively. If sin can masquerade as beauty or light, then how do we know to be on guard to avoid it? By following Jesus' example when he was tempted by Satan, and not following Eve's example when she was tempted by Satan. Jesus quoted scripture to Satan and continued to quote scripture as the temptations continued. Eve initially repeated God's word to Satan, but she quickly abandoned God's instructions in favor of her own estimation. Rather than simply sticking with the simple instruction she had been given about the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, do not eat, she substituted her own judgment. The fruit looked good. She wanted to be wise. She wanted to be like God. I see your point. Jesus, even though he was the Son of God, just returned to God's word every time. Yikes. This is scary. And it should be. Sin can masquerade as beauty and light because the original sinner can put on any guise that suits him at the moment. And Satan has been doing that from the beginning. That's what we heard about in our open scripture. 
Jesus told his disciples that, quote, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies, end quote. Note that Jesus said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and that Satan was the father of lies. Satan started this whole business of sin. You know, we sometimes think that the first sinners were Adam and Eve, but they weren't. I see what you're saying. Adam and Eve weren't the first sinners. The very first sinner was Satan. Yes, and we can learn a lot about the dangers of sin and how to combat it by looking at what the Bible has to say about Satan. Satan was the original sinner. Satan was the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning, so Satan originated murder, if you will. And we hear about Satan practicing his art, lying to Eve, in the opening chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And we hear Satan deceiving the world, even at the end of the Bible, he deceives the world through the Antichrist, what's called the beast and the false prophet. And we hear about that in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. You know, that's something you hardly ever think about. The only person, the only one who transcends the entire period of the Bible's record is God. God is mentioned in the very first verse of the Bible and the last verse of the Bible. And the last three verses of the Bible in Revelation all mention Jesus. God begins the Bible and ends the Bible, which is entirely appropriate. It is his book. But, interestingly, Satan is also mentioned in the first book of the Bible, and in the last. Satan also makes lots of appearances along the way, including at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So, we know that Satan, like all those of the angelic order, do not suffer death. Yes, and during all that long period, there is no evidence found anywhere in the Bible that Satan ever turned away from his sinning ways or repented of his wickedness and evil. And that gives us all something to think about. Such as? Well, even up to this point in history, Satan has been in existence for over 6,000 years. That's a long time. And while Satan is neither omnipresent nor omniscient, during those 6,000 plus years, Satan has seen a lot. Satan has seen God destroy human sinners, a lot of them. He destroyed a lot of human sinners in the flood. He destroyed a lot of human sinners when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Satan also observed Jesus' earthly ministry. He saw Jesus cast demons out of people with just a word. Satan knows the entire Bible, cover to cover, every word. And Satan knows the book of Revelation very well. And the book of Revelation forecasts his ultimate fate. But again, despite all of what he has seen, all that Satan knows, we have no evidence that Satan has ever sought forgiveness or redemption from God. I mean, to the contrary, if those who view the book of Revelation as describing a great future conflict, if those people are correct, Satan and his demonic followers just continue to get worse and worse as time passes. I know where you're going. It is a cardinal belief among the modern world that if we could just give people more information, more education, they would all begin to behave more virtuously, more nobly, more kindly. We hear over and over today that human beings aren't evil, just misinformed. But as we look at the career of an intelligent being that has spanned thousands of years, that belief is called into question. 
Now, I'm sure that there are people today who would say that using Satan as an example of how humans behave isn't fair. We aren't demons or angels. I'm sure they would. And it is true that we human beings are not members of the angelic order. But we are, like them, intelligent, moral agents with free wills of our own. And that's what the angels are. They're intelligent, moral agents who possess free will. But there is an important difference between us and the angels. After Satan and the demons sinned, there is no record in the Bible that they were ever provided a means of redemption. By contrast, after Adam and Eve committed the first sin, God immediately instituted a plan to redeem any of the human race who would begin to place their trust in God for redemption from their sins and not place the trust in themselves. It's a bit of a mystery, and I call this mystery two rebellions, one redemption. The Bible records two rebellions against God, the angelic rebellion and the human rebellion. But the Bible records only one redemption. God made the plans and provisions to redeem a portion of the rebellious humans, but not the rebellious angels. And I think that we can learn a lot by meditating on this situation. And one thing that we learn is that there is a very strong inclination to continue in sin once someone has begun that path. Satan and his demonic followers apparently became irretrievably locked into their rebellion once they started it. And we find that same characteristic true of so many people in the Bible. We think of the Pharaoh that Moses confronted. Pharaoh and his army were ultimately destroyed when they tried to cross the Red Sea after God had parted it for the fleeing Hebrews. But they were chasing the Hebrews after they had seen God perform a series of ten miracles, including the death of the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And we can think of Hebrews in the desert, who even though they had seen the miracles and the destruction of the Egyptian army, decided to rebel against Moses' leadership. We hear about this incident in chapter 16 of the book of Numbers in verses 25 and 26, quote, Then Moses, accompanied by the leaders of Israel, went to Dathun and Abiram, he said to the people, quote, Get away from the tents of those wicked men and don't touch anything that belongs to them. Otherwise, you'll be wiped out with them for all their sins. Unquote. And we can think of the destruction of the ten northern tribes of Israel when they fell into idolatry and refused to give it up. Exactly. In fact, when we go through the Bible, we find that there is one and only one thing that can be counted on to induce people to help people to give up their sin, and that is the Word of God. For instance, one of the most wicked kings in Judah's history was Manasseh. We hear part of his story in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 9-13. through 13. Manasseh led the people to Judah to commit even greater sins than those committed by the nations whom the Lord had driven out of the land as his people advanced. Although the Lord warned Manasseh and his people, they refused to listen. So the Lord let the commanders of the Assyrian army invade Judah. They captured Manasseh, put him in chains, and took him to Babylon. In his suffering, he became humble, turned to the Lord his God, and begged him for help. God accepted Manasseh's prayer and answered it by getting him back to Jerusalem and rule again. This convinced Manasseh that the Lord was God, unquote. That's from the Good News Translation. Manasseh repented of his sins when he remembered God's word. 
And of course, the most spectacular example of a sinner giving up his sin in probably in the entire Bible is when the Apostle Paul, back when he was still called Saul, heard Jesus on the road to Damascus. Saul heard Jesus speaking to him. Saul heard God's word. And hearing God's word changed Saul's destiny so that later on he would become the apostle who would write a goodly portion of the New Testament. You know, time and time again in the Bible, we find out that it is God's word that brings about a change in heart. Even in the classic story of the prodigal son, The prodigal son only repents and returns home after he thinks about his father. And I might go so far as to say, thinks about his father's words. So I think when you put all this together, we find out that only God's word can restrain the growth of sin and return sinners to a path of righteousness. And God opened this path to human sinners by being willing to assume a human nature and then dying a terrible death on the cross. The Bible tells us that God made man in his own image, and after man sinned, God took on, as the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, quote, the likeness of sinful flesh, unquote, to permit man's redemption. This is a powerful line of thinking. People on their own are going to be defeated by sin. Sin is so serious that people can't successfully resist it. It takes the power and love of God to limit the growth of sin and to overcome its effects. But the good news is that God can and does overcome sin. The Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, quote, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Unquote. We can overcome sin, but we must emphasize that we can only do so through the power of God and His Word. Sin is serious because it is directly contrary to God's plans, His commandments, and his nature. So how seriously we view sin is directly related to how seriously we take God. When we sin, when Satan sinned, we are saying to God, we know better than him. That is an unbelievably arrogant and foolish statement. Who can know more than the omniscient? Who could give advice to the one who gives the power for us to think in the first place? You know, we can't think if God hadn't given us the power to think. Well, who can give advice to the one who gave us the power to think? And who can instruct the perfect being that designed all of creation? You know, the answers to those questions, they come automatically. And the answer is no one. And yet Satan, Adam, Eve, and frankly, all of Adam and Eve's descendants, which is to say us, all of us have answered that question about who can do those things better than God Almighty. All of us have answered that question by saying, well, we can. People throughout history have substituted their judgment for God's, but it never improves things when the finite tries to shove the infinite aside or replace his perfection with our imperfections. Satan was one of the most glorious beings ever created, but he sacrificed his exalted status by seeking a status that belongs only to God Almighty. While we don't know for sure how Satan attempted to do that, We know that that kind of an attempt would never succeed. God is not only all-knowing, he is also all-powerful. That's the point. We learn from the very first sinner's failure to achieve his plans that no plan formed against the Almighty will ever succeed. It simply never could. But we also know from the history of Satan that's contained in sacred scripture 
that Satan never learned anything from the failure of his plans. Instead, all scripture tells us about Satan is that he keeps digging his heels in even further in what will be a futile attempt to resist the irresistible. Now the question is whether we will learn from Satan's history, whether we will learn from Pharaoh's history, or whether we will learn from Manasseh's history. When Satan and the demons fell, they locked themselves into eternal enmity against God. Now Pharaoh had the opportunity to repent, but he refused, despite God sending some of the clearest warnings that have ever been given to anyone. Pharaoh died, and tens or hundreds of thousands of Pharaoh's people died with him or because of him. Now Manasseh was a desperately wicked king, but when he was brought so low as to be imprisoned in a foreign land, he remembered God's word, and he remembered God's word that God is merciful to those who repent. So Manasseh humbled himself and repented, and God restored him back to his land. What we all need to learn is that sin is serious, deadly serious. But we must also remember that deliverance from sin and its consequences is possible. But that deliverance cannot arise from purely human means. We need God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's power to come into our lives. We need to humble ourselves and to repent, just as Manasseh did. One of the most comforting lines in all of scriptures is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, quote, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness, unquote. Now that's from the New Living Translation. Sin is serious because it alienates people from God. And God never intended for that to be the case. God gave us the Bible his special revelation, so that we can understand both sides of the equation. As was the case with the prodigal son, sin moves us away from God. But like the prodigal's father, God is always ready to forgive us and restore us when we realize that a life spent apart from God is a life spent in the pig pen of sin. No matter how much money we make, how many cars we drive, Now, how many creaturely comforts we enjoy, a life apart from God is never going to be fulfilling or whole, and it especially will not be holy. A life of sin, which remains without confession or repentance, will only earn us a place in the lake of fire alongside the original sinner, Satan. Sin is serious and deadly, but God, through Jesus' sacrifice, has made restoration available. Now, if we ignore that restoration, then just like Adam and Eve, the only person that will be responsible for our ultimate exile from an almighty, merciful, and holy God is going to be ourselves. This sounds like a great time to pray. It seems appropriate today to pray for the restoration of the worship of the one true God, who is both the architect and builder of the temple of our salvation. Prayer for Restoration of the Worship of the One True God Lord of Destiny, God of Holiness, You ordained the fate of men and nations before the cornerstone of creation was laid. You are blameless in all your acts and commands, and therefore what you ordain must come to pass. Who among men can resist your will? What you sovereignly declare will happen. We rejoice that our hope rests in the power and mercy of an almighty God and not in lesser beings. 
Lord, you know far better than we the blight that has come upon this nation. We have turned from honoring your name and seeking your will to self-exaltation and celebrating our rebellion. We cannot imagine how this must grieve you and give you justifiable cause for rebuke and reproof. We pray that you would raise up in our midst godly men and women who will be the leaders and teachers in a national renewal. We know that you have preserved a faithful remnant for yourself because you have assured us that the gates of hell could not prevail against your church. We praise you that Christ Jesus himself makes intercession for us while he sits at your right hand. We praise him and offer this and all prayers in his holy name. Amen. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also, or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalcbooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S.com. Thank you for your support.